there's an anecdote about hell in which it said that everybody's in hell. There's going to be plenty of food, plenty of good food, which sounds, you know, obviously arrests you, gets your attention. What? Yeah, plenty of good food. But everybody's going to have a really long spoon. Think like, I don't know, a couple meters long, six feet. <laughs> okay. So what's what, that's weird. Well, in other words, um, and that's the only way somehow, you know, in, in this in this construct, the spoon is the only way that you can eat the food. But you can't eat the food. You can't feed yourself. You can't eat it. But you in other words, the long spoon means that somebody's got to feed you. It's too long for you to be able to get the food and feed yourself. Your arm's not six feet long. Can't bring it back to your mouth. You have to feed other people. And because of that and because of the nature of hell where everybody is out for themselves and, and turns on other people, which is the nature of evil and sin and certainly Satan, the king of evil. Uh, everybody will starve. We'll just be constantly starving in hell. And that will be one of the many torments. It's a clever, silly little construct, but it gets across a big idea in this passage here. We're in Revelation 17 now. And that is that um, we really, I mean, the whole chapter is just evil gone wild. And really one of the characteristics of Revelation is that you have this progression of good and evil. And here uh, you see evil in its uh, sort of the flag, flying its flag in, in full color. And you see its many delineations and its full rebellion and its full idolatry and its hatred of God and its unraveling. So um, it's really just all about the great tort as we're nearing the end of the book, the second to last section of Revelation 17 through 19. Things are really picking up speed as far as the, the differences, the vast differences between evil and good. And uh, and we see we see a real contrast here with what follows, which is. Uh, what, what comes after this is, of course, God brings heaven down in the new Jerusalem and the bride of Christ and um, evil is vanquished and there's a new creation that's consummated. And so you, it's a real contrast here, what we see this darkness. And, and it's, it's all about the great prostitute and the beast. Yeah, um, and so let me let me go ahead and read. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Remember, this is all symbol, okay? It's telling us things about evil, and about sin, and about man and the spiritual world's rebellion against God, what they look like. And I saw a woman sitting on a, what they are like. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. So there's lots of wealth, right? And the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. And of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her, the beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, they'll just be left alone to do what they want. No, of course not. Okay, If your brain, name's not written in the book of life, if you don't, aren't a Christ follower, if you're not trusting in 
the son that God has sent, what happens? From the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not. So they're all, everyone that's not in the Lance Book of Life and following Jesus is just enthralled by the, the beast and the prostitute. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind. So evil is coordinating here, right? There's a coordination of evil when it, when it is against God. So in its againstness of God, evil coordinates. But then it finally self-destructs. We see that. We see both, both dynamics in this passage. We see the Herodians and the uh, Pharisees, who were normally virulently opposed to each other and their objectives, uh, get together to conspire against Jesus to crucify him. We see that in the Gospels. So hatred of God brings people together. These are of one mind, but then they turn on each other and devour each other, which we see. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. See? See that? We're going to talk about that. They will make war on the lamb. So is the power theirs? No, it's not theirs. The beast is just using them. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Oops, sorry, you're done. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then finally, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, so the angel is interpreting here, okay, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked. Wait, the beast and the prostitute aren't friends? No, they, they, even, they eventually turn on each other and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. See who's controlling all things. God, his word will always come to pass. His word will remain when the heavens and the earth do not and are remade. And the woman, last verse that you saw, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a picture. So we see evil in all of her rebellion and idolatry and immorality. And we see uh, her judgment by God, who's in control. But let's evil have quite a long rope. Um, in hell, everybody's going to have a long spoon, all right? Um, evil is idolatrous and self-defeating, and it will be ended by God. That's kind of the, what we get here. And Babylon here, which really just stands for the world powers arrayed against God, it really con and, and of course we'll get to this. The Rome, the Seven Hills, Rome, but Rome is really just representative of the world, the world that's arrayed against God, the world powers. Um, Babylon here really contrasts with the New Jerusalem, the city bride coming down from heaven in chapter twenty-one, which is ahead, which I just mentioned. Um, what we get in this contrast is a picture of what Augustine famously, famously framed as the city of God or the city of man. Each human in history has been and is a member of one of these two cities. You're not. There's no third city. To steal from Charles Dickens, the great English novelist, history is therefore a tale of two cities. So if you're looking for a way, a matrix to, to sort of order history and to give you a worldview that makes sense, think of it, think you can think of it in that way. The tale of two cities, the city of God and the city of man, it's always opposed to God, even if it looks like it's not. It's, uh, it's a tale of two, two races or two atoms, the, those that are in the first atom which we're all born into, and those that are reborn into the second, right? So those born in the first Adam are, are only members of the city of man. They're opposed to God always, even if they look like they're not. 
If you are not born again in the second Adam, you are opposed to God, even if you're highly religious. Those born into the second, again, into the second Adam, excuse me, Romans 5, Jesus, are members of the city of God, born again into the new city. The city of man and its artifacts and inhabitants will perish. That's one of the things this chapter really begins to show us. The city of God and all in it will endure, even if it's being destroyed, even if it's being arrayed against, as it surely was in uh, the first three centuries of of the Roman Empire. Um, All that is of the city of man will perish, even if it looks lasting forever and glittering and solid and gold and beautiful, it will it will perish. But the city of God will remain. The seeds that we plant in Jesus' name will grow up into eternity. Um, the city of man will turn to dust under the curse. Um, the city of God will be seed sown that will grow into beautiful oaks like we read about in Isaiah 61. Stars like we read about in Daniel 2, Daniel 12, stars that will shine ever brighter until that unending day. So just a few, we're going to pick out some verses as we walk through the passage, and we're certainly not going to excavate the whole thing, uh, but give you a sense of sort of what the passage is telling us about evil and its characteristics. So first, sin and evil are deeply personal to God. That's one of the things that this image of the prostitute shows us. Sin and evil aren't just infractions. They're not just laws that we break. Whoops. God's not like the divine up there, in heaven with the big ruler waiting to swat us when we step over the line and wrap our knuckles with a ruler or a stick. No, sin and evil are deeply personal to God. That's what, that's what one of the things that the image of the great prostitute in verse 1 conveys, is that sin is always against God and it's always about love. We are loving things more. We are choosing things over God when we make good things ultimate things. We worship them. And until we're born again, until we cast ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ and look to him to save us and admit that what he took on the cross is what we deserve. But he, he took it out of love for us as the only way for us to be saved. Until, until we throw ourselves wholly upon Christ by faith in that way, we, uh, we're idolaters. And it's deeply offensive to God because he loves us so much. It'd be like walking in on your spouse, having sex with another man or woman in your bed. It's deeply offensive because you love them. If you didn't love them, you wouldn't care. You'd just go close the door and go and turn on the TV and watch cable news in the other uh, room. If you did that, however, it would show that you don't love. There's something deeply wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with God. He's perfectly loving. And so sin is idolatry to him. And it's, it's adultery. It's not just idolatry. It's adultery and rebellion. Um, why are those who rebel against God called a prostitute? Uh, Leon Morris This is a vivid way, he says, of describing an unfaithfulness, which is horrible. It shows us that sin is, first of all, a sin against love. So it's sin and evil are deeply personal to God. That's what the great prostitute conveys. Um, Also, secondly, evil is often extremely attractive. We see that in in bright colors here in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. There's a false sheen of idolatry, uh, like a shiny hook that grabs us. Otherwise, we wouldn't go after it, probably. this the whole world system is extreme can be extremely attractive. Um, Ian Paul, another commentator, says that Rome's excessive wealth and indulgence are debasing and corrupting it. Uh, does that sound familiar to you, American? If you're an American, yeah. The Tyrian purple that she wears, he goes on, uses a dye made from tens of thousands of murex rock snails. 
so this woman, this prostitute is arrayed in purple and scarlet. He's saying that was, it was an extremely expensive dye. It was made from tens of thousands of Murex rock snails as purple. The process was highly labor intensive, which made the dye very expensive and a valuable trading commodity. It was highly regulated in the Roman Empire, with only the elite of the wealthy political aristocracy allowed to wear cloth dyed with it. So scarlet was also an expensive dye, and it was usually made from the dried bodies of cochineal beetles. Can you believe that? So this is just a sign that there's a massive amount of wealth, which is super alluring and even intoxicating in the world system. And we could see that today. But it doesn't mean wealth's bad. It's not what I'm saying. Hear me. But the world, the world system, part of her power is her wealth, and it's very attractive and alluring. Leon Morris says outwardly, uh, she was this prostitute. She was this world system. She was all glittering splendor. But John sees the glamour as meretricious. It's, it's, a, it's a lie. It conceals a basic hostility to God combined with the readiness to seduce people from their rightful allegiance. That's what prostitutes do, right? Um, in the scriptures, they seduce you. They stand out there and say, hey, come, my husband's away. Come, come have sex with me. I've made everything ready. Uh, we're it's intoxicating. We're allured. It's, um, it's, de- it's deceptive. Um, there's talk in verse two of, of, of those that are led astray by the prostitute. They become drunk. And in verse 8 says, the world will marvel, right? So that's more of the same. The allure of riches, comfort, power, and sex, they intoxicate us. Sometimes the appeal of these things and their power and beauty literally makes me woozy or lightheaded. So appealing. So you feel drunk with the appeal. Um, I'm sure I'm sure that you can't relate to that. Uh, but we imbibe these things. We sell our soul sometimes for these things or feel like we have. We'll do anything uh, often to get then keep these things and keep them from others. We bow down to them. We worship them. They're our gods. Uh, we can certainly see that in the world. We can also see it in our own hearts. So our sins are idol worship and they're adulterous because we give ourselves to them, body and soul. But we're gods. He's made us and he has redeemed us. He's given his own self and paid uh, the highest price with his own life and his own soul to, to win us back to himself. Um, with, by his blood. So let us repent and call others to turn from these false gods to the true God. No, not, not to, not to not partake of good gifts of God that he made. I'm not saying matter's bad, spirit's good. That's platonic. That's, that's false. But not to elevate good things to ultimate things. The ultimate place is God's alone. Things ought to be in their proper place. Augustine in his rightly ordered loves. Let us love God with all that we are and everything else will find its place. Um, love of love of spouse, love of children, love of friends, love of food, uh, love of working hard, love of job, etc. Love of taking a holiday, whatever. Okay. Another characteristic of evil is that it often seems unbeatable. Uh, this, there are seven mountains in verse nine. Um, that's Rome, the Roman Empire, the world's most powerful empire at the time that John was writing at the end of the first century A.D. Um, it, it thus represents because Rome was the most powerful empire. It speaks to, of course, that audience, but but every audience until Christ returns as the world system. It seems like it has all the power and all the money and all the glitz um, and all. Yeah. And all the control. Um, so here, the seven Mountains represent Rome, but through Rome, the world system, whatever country or or company or city or person is in power at the time, opposed to God. Um, Rome was built on seven hills. Everyone knew that. Um, 
Seven is also a number for totality. And the mountain was the seat of power in the ancient world. So you, the castle is always built on a mountain. I went to Edinburgh to do my doctorate in Edinburgh, Scotland, and, and um, the castle is right there at the top. And that's, that's very typical. It's very standard. Uh, in New College, my, my, um, my college, the Divinity School, is right next door. So that was always a pleasure. What a great what a great perch. But it's right up there at the highest place. You can see it from all around. You can see everything from it as you're up there on the castle battlements and walls. And uh, so it speaks to it speaks to power, the power of the world. It's a symbol that it is. Um, we should interpret uh, in, in verses 10, 11, 12, the seven kings in the same way. Um, in verse 10, and then also with this 10 horns and 10 kings, again, numbers are symbolic in Revelation. In verse 12, the 10 horns and 10 kings. Horns always symbolize power, kings, power and rule and reign. These kings, these seven kings, um, these 10 kings, they may refer, there are lots of details in there we're not going to go into. They may refer to specific kings at the time that had, had come and were reigning and were coming, certain emperors. But they also, through those, because of the numbers we see and con- connected to to Rome and her power, they really represent world powers arrayed against God um, <clears throat> until the true king returns. He's who's reigning now from his throne, and who who whose body is here on earth, the church, whose kingdom is going forward through the church as the gospels preached, and who will, will return and bring heaven down. That's how Revelation ends, and we'll get there. So another characteristic of, of evil is that the world will always hate God. There is no third way. Uh, verse six, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. This isn't literally a woman drinking blood. This is a symbol of the fact that that um, the world hates that. It's a graphic picture of how much the world hates Jesus and his followers. Um, Jesus tells us of the great love of God. He also tells us how uh, he tells us that how offensive our sin and rebellion is to God. And we see that picture here as I as I've unpacked it, um, as John gives it to us. But but also just um, the cross is deeply offensive because it tells us, yeah, this is what it took to save you. This is how evil and opposed to God you are. And this is what a problem it is. That's deeply offensive to people, less offensive to people that are deep, deep in their own sin. And, and when the sin is obvious, if you're if you're a fall down, fall down drunk, if you're um, if you are a prostitute or you uh, have been caught in adultery and shamed or, you know, any other of the sort of more obvious um, sins that can just wreck your life. You've been thrown in the clink in prison for murdering someone or for something else, for theft. You know, you can, we're, we're, our, our capacity for self-deception is infinite, but, uh, sometimes people that are, um, made a, made a mess of their lives through sin, whose sin is public can really, the cross is less offensive. It's more of a, it's like, Oh, you died for me. What a grace. They're more apt to believe, but someone who's lived a good life, especially, uh, has a great resume and has made all the right decisions, the, the, the message of the cross that you also needed dying for by God Almighty. Uh, this is what you deserved. And if you don't come to Christ by faith, it's, it's, you, will, you will have to pay for your own sins and you will be punished forever uh, apart from God and under his wrath. That is deeply offensive. Um, and so the world, the world hates God. Um, it will always be violently opposed to Jesus and his followers. There is no third way. Um, either the city of God or the city of man we're members of. We're either born in the first Adam or born again into the second. Not through our own merits, not through our own behavior, through faith in the merit and the work of Jesus Christ. 
So in the Psalms, this just hooks into so much of, of the Old Testament, right? In, the, in Psalm 2, which is a foundational psalm for the whole book of Psalms in the, in the Old Testament, God's, uh, the, God, the, the hymn book of God's people, the prayer book of God's people. Psalm 2 shows the world leaders, all the world powers arrayed against God, shaking their fists at him, looking at his control as basically handcuffs. Totally opposed to him. And his solution, the solution in the psalm is, is for us to kiss the son that he's put on the throne. David and then through David, Jesus Christ. To come into to bow before him and to kiss him, to show that you uh, are submitting to him and what he's done for you. And uh, wanting to obey him by trusting in him and following him. And also just to come into a relationship with him that's an intimate beautiful, soul-satisfying relationship. Um, and it's only in kissing him that we can hide in him from the wrath, God's wrath to come for his, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And we really see, we really see that um, play out at the end of Revelation in the next section, 19 through 22. This opposition will cease when Jesus returns and ends all opposition to him. He will he will break all, off, all, all who oppose him eventually. He was broken for us, but the time is limited. If we don't run to him, he will return, and it will be all opposed to him will be like clay pots that, that an iron rod is taken to, and they will be smashed and done away with forever. Um, we see that in Psalm 2. We, we see that here. We see that in the chapters that follow and close out uh, this amazing book that closes out the canon. So another characteristic of evil is that it implodes. It turns in on, in on itself and it turns on itself. It's cannibalistic. Um, so you see this in verse 13. They hand over their power to the beast. Those in the world system end up handing over their power to the beast. They think it's theirs. You think, you think the power and the pleasure are yours, but eventually if you don't get on God's side through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, Satan's going to take that from you. He's using you. Those in power and, quote, doing their own thing, or so they think, are mere puppets of the beast. We see that here. They hand over their power to the beast, who's himself a puppet of the dragon, Satan. Those in sin and opposed to God are not free but slaves to sin and Satan, the dark Lord. He's glad for them. He's glad for us to be fooled until it's too late. God is a master is the opposite. Satan steals our power, but God empowers us. He gives us power. He gives us his very self. He gives us his son. He gives us his spirit. He makes us sons and daughters. He wants us to rule with him, but only after we trust him and give our lives to him. Service to God is true freedom, for he's a good master, and he gave his life for us. What's more, he calls us to count the cost of following him up front. He tells us the truth. When we decide to trust and follow him, our yoke is easy and our burden is light. We do find persecution and trial. We will never say, hey, come follow Jesus, best life now. That's false. We find persecution and trial, yes, but we also step into incalculable intangibles beyond price, like peace, deep satisfaction, contentment, and lasting joy, things that you cannot purchase or work for. We simply receive through the work of another Jesus. Satan is a candied hook, delicious at first bite, but which drags down into misery and hellish despair. Okay, he puts on, a, the, he's, a, he's the first date guy. He puts on all the, all the good stuff up front, but then he takes you back to his house, kills you, and buries you under his floorboards. Jesus is a rock that we can build our lives on. He tells us to count the cost up front when we come to him. He gives us all of himself. In the end, there are only two ways. We're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Romans 6.16. Choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua 24. You may not have tomorrow.
Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90. Okay, um, and then we see also in this the, the how evil turns on itself that it's it's um it's can evil's cannibalistic. It, verse sixteen, they will hate the prostitute. They there is the world. They will they will hate the prostitute. What? Yeah, evil turns on itself. This will be one of the many torments of hell. Everyone will hate everybody else. Civil war will be constant and ubiquitous. Uh, God is the opposite. He engenders peace by taking war into himself. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Uh, he who knew no sin, Jesus, Jesus Christ the righteous, he who knew no sin, he'd never sinned. He didn't know what it tasted or felt like. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That he gives us his righteousness. It's imputed to us by faith. And he takes our sin into himself, pays the price for it, buries it, arises again. In him alone. The Prince of Peace has found true peace and service to him is true freedom. In the end, God wins. I thought we see this um, begin and end. And, and then as we as we uh, ramp up to the end in this book, we see that massively and obviously. But um, in verse one, it says it says the judgment of the great prostitute doesn't just mention the prostitute. It talks about her. I'm going to show you her judgment, John. The world looks powerful and unbeatable and certainly did in, in John's day and always does until Christ returns. Right. It always will. Um, but we have to look with the eyes that John gives us in Revelation with eyes of faith. Here's what's really happening. The world looks powerful and unbeatable, but the world loses. Again, look how the passage begins. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Verse one, God will judge all who oppose him. Revelation could be summed up in this way. Two words. We win. We win. Christ looked like he lost on the cross, but he won. And through him, because of the cross, we will win as well. If we are in him by faith, Christ is the victor. And those who trust in him and follow him, sharing that victory, he actually was victorious over beat, sin, death, hell, and Satan on that cross. And that's how we win, too, by giving our lives to him and surrendering. No matter how bad it looks, uh, God's children are losing. It looks like God's children are losing. Ultimately, we win. Got to keep that end game in mind. And so it helps us persevere. It helps us. We've got to have that vision. Uh, verse 10, a little while. And then verse 12, one hour. Satan, sin, and evil have their heyday, but their time is limited. Their days are numbered. Um, Satan knows that his doom is, is sure and that his time is short. Um, for the followers of the Lamb, it's the opposite. We suffer now, though with joy and hope, but eternal joy is coming. We will step through the gray rain curtain of these shadow lands where there is loss and sin and hardship and sometimes misery but never despair and into quote a far green country under a swift sunrise. That's from Tolkien and the shadows will flee forever and he will do away with every sadness and comfort us personally. Revelation 21, four, how wonderful for the hellion. This is as good as it gets this life. Soak it up for God's sons and daughters. It will only get better. Persevere, fight on good soldier of the King. Bring as many with you as you can. The words of rescue that we have to offer are these. Christ died for sinners. He died for you. Such is his love for you. Come to him. Um, lastly, until the words of God are fulfilled in verse 17, wrapping up the passage, until the words of God are fulfilled. Right. So that just reminds us that God's words are going to be fulfilled. His plan, this is all part of his plan. He uses sin and evil. The cross is the ultimate display of that. 
He holds up all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.17. He is totally sovereign and in control. His words will be fulfilled. It's just a matter of time. And we, he has allowed us to be participants in that happening. We're not fatalists. We don't just sit and watch, watch things go by. We have a part to play. We are helping for God's words to be fulfilled. And indeed they will because of the work of Jesus Christ. All is according to God's good plan. All put in motion through the victory of Jesus that we saw preeminently in chapter five of Revelation. All the woe in the world must pass through nail-scarred hands. They are on the levers of the nerve center of the cosmos pulling them. We can trust them. God bless you.